Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. I think you've really shone a light for uh, for us. I mean, not that we weren't aware on some level, but it's really uh, shone a brighter light on the fact that if someone's coming in for a clinical reason and they're displaying symptoms of depression, that we shouldn't just brush that off. That sh- we need to take the time and dig in. Is that correct? Absolutely. Welcome back for episode two of our series, Out of Darkness, Symptoms and Treatments for Major Depressive Disorder. I am Dr. Candice Pierce for Calibri Healthcare. In episode one, we focused on symptoms within the diagnostic criteria of depression and observed symptoms that are seen in most people suffering with major depressive disorder, but they're not necessarily a part of that diagnostic criteria. In this episode, we're going to discuss the how-to for discussing suicidal ideation with patients and the present treatments for depression, along with some very interesting possible future treatments. We are going to rejoin the discussion with our host, Leanna, and our expert, Dr. Reg, as they continue the discussion on major depressive disorder. Not, not every nurse is going to necessarily have a psych background to be able to you know, evaluate their depressive symptoms and come up with a diagnosis. But what's important is that that nurse be able to say, you know, I'm concerned about what's going on for you and make an appropriate referral. You know, that's what a nurse that is not in psych mental health, as an example, can actually do because of the, the, the desire to care for that person and provide them the best health care that they can. And that's what I believe every nurse should do. I've had nurses say to me, oh, you know, when I was in school, I didn't like psych. So now I'm not doing psych. And my response to them is, yes, you are. Because (laughs) if you're going to be an effective practitioner, you're going to do psych. (laughs) You can't escape it. Because people come in with all kinds of stresses. And I've seen some nurses, you know, say, well, I, you know, I, I'm in peds. I don't have to deal with any psych problems. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> What's going to happen with that mother and father that are freaking out over something right. of a diagnosis of their child? You're not going to use your psych skills? Yes, you will. <laughs> and so yes. there's where I've really confronted nurses about the importance of build their <laughs> skill even though they don't necessarily have to go into psych, but they're going to call on their psych skills throughout their entire career. Yes, definitely. I I totally agree. And to your point, I think that uh, bringing that point uh, to the open about contacting a psych nurse or doing the referral is key because I think sometimes that nurses are afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing. But if you bring in someone who knows what to say and how to broach the topic and go from there... Then you're then you're fine. I, I, it doesn't have to be. You don't have to take on everything as the caregiver. So that's really important to remember those resources. Just to add to that comment, uh, uh, Leanna uh, is. Um, I often tell nurses that you know don't worry about you're going to say the wrong thing to the person. 
They've already had all the wrong things said to them already <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so you're not going to say something that's so much worse. If you care and you are connecting with that person and you've got empathy, guess what? You are helping that person. And so I never worry uh, at all that a nurse is going to say some horrible thing to a patient. If they are operating from that perspective of being empathetic and being supportive and being concerned about the welfare of their patient, they're going to be fabulous. Excellent. Great point. Empathy Empathy is the key ingredient at all times. Empathy and not sympathy, because they, they you know, people can tell the difference. Exactly. They can, they, uh, they can read that right away. Uh, now, this topic, uh, I realize that depression can sometimes sadly lead to suicide attempts or ideation. Uh, how often does that occur, and how many are actually follow through with it? Well, you know, when you look at yeah, it, you know, one of the things that I think is, is one of the most serious outcomes to depression, of course, is suicide. And, uh, and it is something that I can tell you as, as a provider, I take extremely serious. I do not mm -hmm. ignore it. I make sure that I've evaluated it. And I ask the, the questions that I think every nurse should do when, when they are wondering, you know, is this person possibly having suicidal thoughts. But to answer your question, there are probably more than about 47, yeah, say it right. There probably are more than about 47,000 patients or people that complete a suicide per year. So when wow. you think about it, that wow. is pretty huge. You know, we lost 58,000 people, young men, some women, in the Vietnam War. Right. This is not wow. that far from that amount per year. That was the whole Vietnam War of the 58,000. Think of that happening almost having that per year with suicide. So that's why suicide is so important to not ignore. And if anything, we need to do everything in our power to make sure that a patient isn't suffering to the point where they are literally seriously wanting to die. And that is so important. You know, it's about 12 million people uh, have serious thoughts about suicide. So that's not uncommon million. to see that, in, that number. About 3.6 million have made a plan. So they really have a idea in their mind of how they would actually complete suicide and 1.4 million have attempted and those are statistics that were put out by the cdc uh, and so it is important to recognize that suicide is very serious and it is not something to ever ignore it's the 10th leading cause of death in the u.s where homicide is 16th wow so when you just think of that alone it, it, it is more than homicide. And, and you know, we, we, we just think of, you know, how many people are being killed by homicide. It's nothing in terms of comparison. And, you know, many of the statistics on suicide, you really have to think about that probably more because how many uh, single car accidents occur right. that were considered an accident, mm -hmm. but in reality may have been a suicide. 
you know, you don't know in terms of how many more really actually died from completing suicide. So what I always tell people that nurses that work with patients is if you have any question whatsoever, you ask. Right. That is so important. But you've got to build a rapport with the patient before you just look at them and say, well, are you thinking about killing yourself? That's not the best way to approach it. So know that, that it is important to assess and it is something that no nurse should ever, ever ignore. No, um, that it absolutely just blew my mind, that comparison with the Vietnam War. It just really drove the point home. It's staggering numbers. I'm curious about the 3.6 million who have made a plan. If someone has made a plan, are they more likely to attempt? Yes. Uh, it doesn't mean necessarily uh, that, you know, given that they have a plan, that they're going to follow through on it. Uh, one of the things, uh, Leanna, to keep in mind is when a person is having thoughts of suicide, uh, they're ambivalent. Uh, they they at one point think, oh, I, you know, I, I just I want to I want this over. I want this pain to end. And so they then they have thoughts of suicide. But there's another part of them still wants to leave, live. And so that is one thing I recognize when I'm dealing with someone who's suicidal. Now, knock on wood, uh, I have never lost a patient uh, through suicide. Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. uh, it is scary as a practitioner because I certainly don't want any of my patients to ever complete a suicide. But it is something that I take very seriously and I evaluate it. And if I determine that they are um, a suicidal risk, I literally have them go to the emergency room and have it evaluated. In every case that I've done this, the hospital has agreed with my assessment and they hospitalized the patient because they were that serious. So I've, I've always made the right decision in those situations. I never let the person go home when they were that suicidal. And thank goodness for that. Uh, but it's serious. And, uh, and you know, we'll... We'll talk more about suicide for sure, but uh, nonetheless, it is something that, that as, as a practitioner, you never want to ignore. No, yes, we will be doing actually a separate podcast on suicide, but the, this ties in with the depression conversation, and it talks about, you know, it ties in with assessing these folks for sure. And what about asking about suicide? Because I know that some people are afraid that if they mention it, that it'll plant an idea in the patient's head. Is that accurate, or should we just let that thought go? Get rid of it, because it's a myth. There, gotcha. I've never had a patient, and I've told many, many nurses to, to never worry that somehow by you saying, you know, have you thought about suicide? And the patient says to you, well, no, but now that you mention it, that's a good idea. I've never had a patient say that. Gotcha. Believe me, when, when you ask them the question, you can get a sense of relief in the, in the patient that, I'm actually letting someone else know of the pain I'm going through. And that in itself is very protective for the person in that sense. Not 100%, but it certainly is on the road of literally keeping a person from actually doing harm to themselves. 
And so whether it's an attempt or a completed suicide is what you are really trying to prevent. And that is so important to do. And uh, so indeed, that's a myth. Never ever do I have people worry that somehow you're planting an idea in their head because you really aren't. They've thought about that long before you even mentioned gotcha. it. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And again, we will concentrate more on this topic in, a, in another podcast episode. But just a few, if you could give us a few tips on how to bring up the topic if you're someone who's not comfortable and you're assessing a patient, what, are, what is some verbiage or approaches that we could use that would be helpful? Okay. Uh, I'm pleased to tell you and give you some ideas of how to deal, that, deal with that because that's what's important. What I think is also important is to re- remember that, uh, and I use this example with, with nursing students, and said, you remember the first time you ever gave an injection? You know, you were, you were sitting there shaking in your boots. Oh, good Lord, I, you know, could I hurt the person? You know, am I going to do this right? You know, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, how did you get better at it? Yeah. You practiced. You orange. did more. <laughs> Same thing with asking a patient about their suicidal thoughts. The more you do it, the easier it becomes for you. And so you never, you're never uncomfortable, you know, initially, yes, just like you were with that injection, it, it's no different, but the fact remains is the more you get comfortable in asking the questions and find out, and when you do pick up on a patient that is suicidal, you, have, you, you will get accolades like you won't believe. And that's what's important. And it doesn't mean that you then have to do the assessment as to how much of a risk they are. It's the fact that they're a risk. Get them, call in the resources, call in the troops, to help you to then deal with this, to get this further evaluated so that that patient wouldn't leave and then actually completed suicide. So that's one point. The first thing I think is so important is to build a rapport with the patient. You can't just jump in and say, well, you know, are you thinking of killing yourself? Because that is so shocking to the person that they may not really answer you honestly. But if you've built mm-hmm. some rapport and you are empathetic with that patient, they will tell you when you ask them. And what I usually recommend is, you know, start out uh, slowly, but uh, make sure that throughout that interview that you are making with the patient, that you've asked them the question. So it could be things like, you know, how badly uh, are you feeling or how hopeless do you feel? Um, that's a good question to ask a patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you thinking a lot about death or being better off dead? Uh, that's, a, that's a very good way to, to get into this whole thing. But I think what's most important is you are direct, you're open, and you're matter of fact. Uh, and you can ask the person, do they have a plan? And, uh, and if they do, you know, how serious a plan is this? Now, sometimes I've had patients say, you know, I've thought of it, but I can't do it uh, because, you know, my, it would affect my children forever. And th- that is so true. One of the things that I do with patients is I do talk with them about the fact that, you know, very often when they are very depressed, their feeling is, you know, my family would be better off with me dead. Well, 
I assure them that under no circumstances ever, ever is the family better off with you dead because they're not. They will have to live with it for the rest of their life. And mm-hmm. I often talk with patients about that. And Leanna, I've had patients say to me, oh my goodness, I never thought of it that way. Because see, they're so focused on the pain that they're in that they're not thinking of the impact. But that doesn't make it so that all of a sudden now they're no longer suicidal. It just means that it is something that you need to help them to put in perspective in that sense. And it, and it really, again, uh, I've, I've had patients that um, I've done that and that really opened up their thinking in terms of their suicidal thoughts. What I think is most important to recognize is that when you treat depression, you put a patient on medication and they are having thoughts of suicide and the medication starts to work, they will come back. This is how, I can't tell you how many times this has happened. And the patient has said to me, my goodness, I can't believe I was thinking about suicide a week ago. I'm not thinking about that now. I, 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 this just boggles my mind that I, I was thinking in that wow. way. And that just shows you how much this is an illness, not a weakness. If right. the medication wasn't doing something, then they wouldn't be saying that. So that's what's important to recognize. It's the treatment and that support that you're providing that can really make the difference of their thinking more about suicide or not. Well, that's a perfect segue into my next question, which was about treatment approaches. So how do we approach this from a treatment perspective? The most common treatment uh, for major depressive disorder uh, is uh, usually using a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is called an SSRI. Uh, And that can be things like uh, fluoxetine, which is Prozac, or uh, uh, sertraline, which is Zoloft, or um, uh, Cetapram, which is uh, Celexa. Those are just a couple examples of uh, that type of medication uh, that is used as an SSRI. And they can be very effective. Uh, They don't always work perfectly for every person, uh, and so recognize that. But it is certainly the med that is most often prescribed for major depression, uh, and I've had tremendous luck. Now, one of the things that I do um, is I tend to uh, do a, uh, a genetic test that I use to evaluate how the person metabolizes different psychiatric meds. So it provides a report and it puts it in what are called three zones. There's a green zone, a yellow zone, and a red zone. The green zone are the meds for that, for let's say for depression, it would list out the meds that probably the person would have less side effects and may be more effective in treating it. It is not not an absolute, it's not a panacea, but it certainly helps to reduce the, you know, hunting and pecking to try to figure out what's going to work for the patient. So, so then a yellow zone is that there may be some side effects or it may not be as effective uh, for certain people. You know, if they're a smoker, for example, it will sometimes put that med in like a yellow zone. 
And then the red zone is where the med would cause more side effects that really could be troublesome for the person. And so if you don't know how the patient metabolizes the med, you could put them on the wrong med and then they're having all kinds of side effects and they'll say, ooh, ooh, I don't like this and stop taking it. Well, now you're back to zero point. And that's not the way to, to go with treatment. Hmm. What is important about the side effects of SSRIs, the most common side effects are either headaches or uh, nausea and vomiting. Those are the most common. If, and what I've found in my own practice is if I really let the patient know about that, they will often come back to me and say, you know, you helped me, to ex you explained this to me, and I found out that um, I did have a headache, but it only lasted about a day, and, and I was fine. And it's, it's, it's preparing them for what are going to be the most common side effects of the med versus something where they had no idea, and they said, I'm not taking this anymore, and then now what is, what is accomplished in that? So that's where I think, again, being very open with the patient about what are the side effects of this med, uh, what are the typical side effects, but every person differs. So there's no guarantee that they're going to have a certain side effect. And I've put some patients on some SRIs, they had no side effect. So it, it goes the gamut in terms of it. So it's amazing in terms of that. There are other meds out there that, that can be used for depression. But the usual starting place uh, is, is using an SSRI. Well, that's really interesting. And then do you combine the medication combined with other treatments? Absolute. What I tell uh, all the patients is that uh, what happens is that you um, are going to have the most positive outcome when you marry psychotherapy with medication. Because, Leanna, if, if medication was it, and you were depressed, and you came to see me, and I'd say, Leanna, your genetic test shows that you would be most probable affected best by this particular med, not best, but it's in your green zone, uh, and put you on it, uh, and say, you know, we're done. Right. It doesn't work that way. Sure. Because one of the things that depression does is it creates that distorted thinking. Right. If the medication would just correct that immediately, well, then that, wouldn't that be great? But it doesn't work that way. So it's the combination of psychotherapy and medication that helps. Now, what type of psychotherapy? Well, the most common that's used and, and has shown in research to be one of the most effective psychotherapy methods to use uh, is cognitive behavioral therapy. And uh, it really is, just by its nature of what it's defined as being, is to help a person correct some of their thinking. Uh, and that's where it is really, really very, very powerful. Now, some clinicians use sort of a cookbook. They'll, they'll follow a sort of a manual. I don't. I find that I need to adapt my cognitive behavioral strategies that I help a patient learn uh, based on what they're, what they, how they kind of think, what works the best for them, talk with them, give them a strategy, they go home. I, because I'm an educator all of my, my career, 
I often tell patients, well, guess what? I'm giving you homework assignments, and I do. And they will go home and try a particular uh, cognitive behavioral strategy and see if it helps. And then they come back and report on it. We adjust it based on what you know they found that seemed to work better, what didn't work as well, that kind of thing. And it's amazing of the success I've had. That's what's kept me in this business is just all of what I've done over my career, both in the research, teaching, and clinical work that I've done. So it's made it fun for me from my, you know, feeling like I've had a very rewarding career. Yes, I would think so. Now, I'm assuming um, that there would be some medications. Are there other medications on trial? Are they continually trying to improve on treatment for depression? Yeah, in fact, um, what's, what's happened is that there are a number of clinical trials that are underway uh, as we speak uh, that are starting to show uh, some real positive outcomes to a major depressive disorder. And, uh, and so, like, for example, um, uh, Zolreso uh, was a med uh, that was used for postpartum depression. Uh, but it required an IV infusion. Uh, so there are uh, some trials of actually trying that with major depressive disorder uh, in addition to treating postpartum depression. And so that's one. Um, the other is um, that uh, uh, there are, are meds that sometimes are used, uh, are what are called atypical antipsychotics uh, that are used to treat depression. But keep in mind, uh, they have some serious side effects that you really do have to monitor and, and be careful in using. And usually, if, if I'm putting a patient on that, it would be after I have tried different meds that, that may, have, may have not worked as well as we were hoping. Um, and then there's another class of meds uh, that are, that are uh, really called serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRIs. Uh, and an example of, of, of a drug like that is Effexor. Uh, uh, and that is one that is used sometimes uh, as an effective because it, it deals both with the serotonin in the brain along with norepinephrine. And so it has sort of a dual purpose in terms of the neurotransmitters in the patient's brain. There is some uh, meds that are out there, and like I said, uh, that they're really trying to test. Um, uh, cyclocybin uh, is under clinical trial that has magic mushrooms wow. that we huh. often refer to as magic mushrooms, or lysergic acid, uh, LSD, uh, is under clinical trial. And they are showing to be quite effective in treating depression, but they're still under clinical trial. So I don't have the option right now of trying one of those meds with a patient, uh, but I have a feeling in the next uh, couple of years, those, re those could really be available. And, uh, and so um, uh, even uh, methadone has been used uh, for treating uh, opiate addiction, but shows a, some uh, effectiveness for depression. So what's, what's kind of neat about what I see going on in the research world is that there are some clinical trials where they really are seeing some positive outcomes to major depressive disorder. So it's encouraging in that sense. It is very encouraging. Um, other treatments? Are there other treatments that they're using? 
I know that ECT, I remember seeing a treatment of ECT when I was in nursing. And, you know, from a clinical perspective as a young woman, I thought it was pretty scary, but it is effective, correct? It is. It is, especially in um, uh, what what is often referred to as um, uh, persistent depressive disorder. In other words, it's, it's long-term depression uh, that the person uh, has what often some people refer to as treatment-resistant depression. I don't particularly like the term because it makes it sound like the patient is being, you know, uh, sort of... Uh, being resistant. It's not. It's, it's, it's that the, the med that is going to treat the depression uh, isn't working as well. And so it, it becomes a challenge to figure out what to do. And so persistent uh, depressive disorder uh, is, is the term. Uh, but I think what's important is that sometimes there are uh, treatments out there, and especially when you have someone that's gone through a number of trials of different meds and it isn't working, that ECT can be a possibility. The other is um, uh, what is now referred to as repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation has been shown to be somewhat effective and doesn't create the seizure that a ECT does. But remember, uh, what happened in, in the whole treatment of using ECT was when the movie came out of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yes. It depicted ECT as if the patient is on the bed, thrashing away, etc. That is not how it actually happens. No. And one of the things that I always required undergraduate students to do is go and observe ECT. And they would all the time come back and say, oh my goodness, it is so different than what I was expecting. Because see, they have the image of what was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Uh, as the, what ECT is, and it's not, not at no, all. And so it can be very effective. Um, ketamine uh, is been shown, uh, and and now it's it's been showing some effectiveness with infusion, nasal spray, or even pill form. And there's pros and cons to each each of them, but but the, that ketamine has been shown to be somewhat helpful for treatment resistant depression or persistent depressive disorder. Um, uh, botulism uh, that's used for you know, toxin that, is, uh, uh, that people will get, and they found that people that needed to get rid of some wrinkles ah, yes. started saying, gee, I don't feel so depressed. And so that was it. Wow. And, uh, and then there's a newer one that is called magnetic seizure therapy, which is an alternate to ECT. And that's gaining uh, some use. There's uh, some clinical trials using that. So there, there are a number of real interesting treatment possibilities that are coming on the horizon that I think are encouraging. Well, that's fantastic information, and it is encouraging. I thank you so much uh, for several things. Number one, uh, giving us your expertise, sharing your expertise with us today helping to demystify some of the uh, myths and things that have been going on about uh, depression, um, letting us know that it's okay to, you know, tap into the resources and not take this on yourself in a clinical setting, get past our discomfort and have those conversations. 
And obviously, by your testimony uh, with those treatments and those conversations, combined treatments, you've had success stories, and I'm sure there are many, many out there. So it's worth us paying attention to our patients for whatever reason they come into the clinical setting. Uh, Dr. Williams, it is an absolute thrill to spend the last hour with you and to learn more about depression. Uh, And again, we'll have another conversation about suicide in a separate podcast. Thank you for joining us. You are certainly welcome. It was my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode on depression with Dr. Reg Williams. We encourage you to familiarize yourself with the numerous courses available at EliteLearning.com to advance your career. And we certainly appreciate you listening. This is Leanna McGuire for Calibri Healthcare. We hope you've enjoyed our series, Out of Darkness, Symptoms and Treatments for Major Depressive Disorder. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of taking their life or in an immediate health crisis, Please call or text the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. This line is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you will be connected to trained counselors who can provide support and resources. If you or someone you know is struggling with or what you think may be major depressive disorder, we at Calibri Healthcare encourage you to seek help with a counselor nearest you in person or through telehealth. You can also find more resources through the National Alliance for Mental Health, also known as NAMI, at www.nami.org or by calling or texting 1-800-950-6264. You can keep your learning going by finding additional podcasts and other educational resources on EliteLearning.com. This is Dr. Candace Pierce for Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.